0: Worship was a farce in Shiloh, mainly because it was led by unqualified men. Unqualified, that's what I call them. God calls them worthless, worthless men. Verse 12, now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They were scoundrels. They were good for nothing, unprofitable, useless men. God uses the the Hebrew word that we translate as worthless, but it literally reads, sons of Belial. Not sons of God, but sons of Satan. The rest of verse 12 says, they did not know the Lord. They were leading religious events, but it was an act, a show, a job. They didn't know Yahweh. Priests who were not Christians, preachers who had never been redeemed, men working in God's house who were not part of his family. They were holding holy things but remaining unaffected by them. They were the nation's spiritual leaders but didn't have a spiritual bone in their body. Just because someone holds one of God's offices doesn't mean they are one of God's. And you say, well, well, well Kyle, it is, is, Isn't the high priest Eli? Yes, but he's old now. His sons, Hophni and Phinehas, do the majority of the work. We are given a rare description in our text of how these sons desecrated worship. Deuteronomy 18 and Leviticus 7 set the precedent for how sacrifices were to be received. People should bring their animals to the priests. These were the official slaughterers of the tabernacle. Being a a priest was a bloody job. They were Old Testament butchers. And there was a certain amount of meat that was allocated for the priests. The priests couldn't go out and farm and make a living because they were working and living in the tabernacle. The priestly tribe had no inheritance. So God implemented a process to care for them. When God's people brought an animal to sacrifice, a certain portion would go to the priests so they could eat. And scholars say that the only meat sacrifice that would, have been invo- that would have involved the offerer rather than the priest actually cooking the meat would have been the peace offering. R.C. Sproul pointed out that the peace offering was the only sacrifice that the worshipers could eat. And God spelled out the instruction very clearly on how this was to go down. But these priests could not have cared less about God's instructions. They developed their own practice. You find it in verse 13. The custom of the priest with the people was that when any man offered a sacrifice, that could be an ox, a sheep, or a goat, when any man offered a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand and he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. See, the priests were ordinarily entitled to the breast and the right thigh of the sacrifices. But this alternate Shiloh system was unheard of. Archaeologists have discovered these three-pronged forks, these long three-pronged forks, In archaeological digs. God had decided what size forks they could use. But they wanted bigger ones. God already gave them portions of meat. But that wasn't enough for them. They needed more. They had become gluttonous, greedy, and guilty of breaking God's instructions. When God filled their plate, they asked for a bigger one. In addition to the breast and the right thigh, they said, I'll also take that juicy roast and that unique heart delicacy. But it even went further than stabbing the juiciest meat. Notice in verse 15, Moreover, meaning there was more to their crimes, Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast. For he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. The narrator even plays out what this was looking like at the tabernacle. A faithful Israelite would bring his family to the yearly festival at Shiloh. He held a massive plate of meat. He would roast the fat first. That was an offering to the Lord. Then he would boil the right thigh and the breast for the priests, whatever was left over. That's what the family ate. But the priest would would come around before the worshippers started roasting and they would demand roasted meat, not boiled meat. I don't want boiled meat. I'm tired of eating boiled meat. This feeble, old, bearded Israelite who brought his family to worship followed the biblical pattern in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. But the priests were not following any biblical worship patterns in Shiloh. Give me that prized cut. Uh, priest, sir, that belongs to the Lord. I'm su- supposed to burn that fat piece as an offering. Shut up and give it to me. Sir, that's the prized cut. That's the choicest meat that belongs to God. Their protest was useless, and non-compliance was met with force. What did you say, bearded old man? Nothing, sir. Take take what you want. Please don't hurt us. That's what I thought you said. What a fine piece of meat this is. We are eating well tonight, boys. The priests turned into thugs, jacking whatever food they desired. The way they used the threat of violence was almost mafia-like. They even had servants in on pilfering the choicest meat. And the constant cry of the worshipers was, the fat belongs to the Lord. Verse 17. Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord. For the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. (laughs) You may be thinking, what's the big deal? Murder, I mean, I can see how that's a big deal, but this kind of seems like Uh, slipping a little meat off the buffet when you've only ordered the salad bar. Isn't God overreacting here? I mean, later he's going to kill some people because of this? God must have really wanted that juicy roast. He must have been a bit hangry. My husband, you know, nearly kills somebody sometimes when he's hangry. Maybe that's what's going on. No. Here's what you need to understand. When Old Testament people sacrificed, they were not feeding God. God didn't eat meat. That's how pagans worship their gods. God's sacrificial system was all about covering sin. He was putting training wheels on his people to show them that the ultimate sacrifice must one day be given to remove their sin. Here's the big deal. This was the way God dealt with sin. They were saying by their actions, we don't care how God deals with sin. They were sinning against God's means of grace. This was more than priestly abuse, giving religion a bad name in Israel. This was an attack on God's holiness, God's redemption, God's salvation, God's sacrifice. We are going to pull out worship principles as we walk through the narrative. Here's worship principle number one. When the leaders of worship do not have a high view of God, it will lead to desecrating worship. When the leaders of worship do not have a high view of God, it will lead to desecrating worship. When you read the next verse, you might think that the narrator is changing subjects Quickly, but but what he's doing is artfully alternating between Eli's sons and Elkanah's son, he's showing you a contrast. Uh, Here's the pattern it begins Hophni and Phinehas and then moves to Samuel. Hophni and Phinehas, Samuel. Hophni and Phinehas, Samuel, they are they are juxtaposed. You will not get discouraged about Hophni and Phinehas so long as you see little Samuel running around Shiloh. We don't know how old Samuel is currently, but maybe six or eight. What's he doing running around Shiloh? Verse 18. Samuel was ministering before the Lord. They didn't have little playground sets at Shiloh. Children, serve the Lord in your youth. Samuel did this by helping some of the big people at the tabernacle do jobs. Verse 18 continues, Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod. God always has his remnant, his faithful followers. In the midst of the farce, there is hope. In the midst of the farce, there is Samuel. Samuel is unsullied by Hofnan Phinehas' sinful influence. He was functioning like a JV priest. Hophni and Phinehas, they were varsity. Samuel, JV. He's wearing a distinctly priestly garment. A linen ephod. His youthful opportunity to to wear garments of privilege and positions are reminiscent of, of both Joseph in Genesis 37 and later David in 1 Samuel 17. When I was six years old, I would go on a work site with my dad. He had his crew. I would would put on a, a tool belt and knee pads just like him. I would walk around wearing these oversized articles like I was one of the men. Samuel is there wearing what his spiritual father Eli wears, a linen ephod. And Eli loved Samuel. He even calls him son later in the text. Verse 19, and his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Church, you may remember last week, Hannah gave her three-year-old child to the service of the tabernacle. She visited once a year to make her peace offering and each time would bring an outer coat that was worn over the linen ephod. It would keep Samuel warm. Each year she made it a, a little bigger so it would provide for a year's growth for the boy. Samuel is the first to wear a robe in the book of 1 Samuel. This will become a motif throughout. The narrator will put the main characters in robes. Each year, Eli would sit and talk to Elkanah and Hannah. He would update them on Samuel's physical and spiritual progress. One specific year, mentioned in verse 20, Eli blessed Elkanah and Hannah. Saying, God give you children to replace this child you have dedicated to God. The narrator jumps forward in verse 21 to show you that that prayer was answered. Verse 21 Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. The Lord is not man's debtor, He gave her five more children. The barren had become fruitful. Hannah sang about that. The narrator comes back now to Hophni and Phineas. I already showed you their liturgical sins. Now I'll show you their moral sins. Verse 22. Now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel, and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. John Wycliffe said these women were like nursery attendants for small children. They would help families with small children who came to sacrifice. They would take care of small children like Samuel who were dedicated to the use of the tabernacle. They're mentioned as far back as Exodus 38:8. They were secretaries and greeters of the tabernacle, general volunteers that helped with the upkeep And these women lived somewhere in the precincts around the tabernacle. The tabernacle was still a portable structure at this time, but it was no longer moving. It stayed in Shiloh. So they built some rooms or little apartments around it. It became more of a semi-permanent structure. And these women stayed in these rooms or little apartments. Eli's sons were married, but committing adultery with these women. They would send their assistants with the big fork to steal the meat, and then they would step off into one of those little rooms and one of those little side rooms with one of those women. Not only was this sinning against the women, but it was sinning against the tabernacle. By uncovering their nakedness, these priests might have well uncovered the holiest of holies. Just rip that curtain down. They turned the tabernacle into a brothel, a place where sin was committed. Rather than confessed, which leads us to our second worship principle. It's a horrible situation for God's people to be under abominable spiritual leaders. You may suffer under degenerate pastors. It it would rock you if I unpacked all the pastors I know who have had affairs, many in their church buildings. I keep a book in my library right through this door. It's it's a reminder to me. It's in the marriage section. It's a reminder of how callous towards sin spiritual leaders can become. This man wrote a book on marriage. Sarah and I went to a couple's retreat and he was the main speaker. We found out a year later that he was having an affair at the same time he was opening up the Bible and talking to us about marriage. And he was doing it in the church building sometimes before the service. We just found out last week a pastor's wife was having an affair with the assistant pastor. And the senior pastor knew about it, but was okay with it because he was involved in the same things. Now, in both of those cases, those pastors had weak theology. One terrible theology, another just weak theology. So it's easy for us to stand back and blame it on that. But see, that's not the case for my mentor from a distance pastor who believed exactly what we do preached exactly like we do and a lady came forward saying she's been having an affair with him for years and she had I'll never forget reading his confession letter I have it here I confess this sin and take full responsibility for it there are no justifications excuses or rationalizations for my behavior I, in acts of idolatry, chose sin over God. I am profoundly ashamed at the enormity of my rebellion, as well, hear this church, as well as the hypocrisy of exercising ministry while cloaking my sin in the shadows. He continues, despite the profound grief and shame, I am deeply thankful to my heavenly Father for graciously exposing this sin and forcing me to turn from it. Because of my sin, I have disqualified myself from the office of elder. Furthermore, I have no desire to pursue ministry of any kind. His last sentence, I have failed you, but the gospel of Jesus Christ will never fail you. Some of you have been pastored by Hophni and Phineas. I am sorry. I am sorry that you were under those at times degenerate pastors and at times unregenerate pastors. Pastors should be the chief repenters in the congregation. But dear friend, don't forget, your faith doesn't rest in these people. It rests in the work of Christ. When they fall, you don't have to be shaken. God isn't. Christianity doesn't stand or fall on Hophni's and Phineas's. It stands or falls on the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And some of you here this morning, you're non-Christians. Some of you non-Christians may have met a Hophni and Phineas and written off Christianity. Before you do that, you need to meet Jesus. He's a priest that will never fail you. He's the chief shepherd, the senior pastor that never sinned but died because you did. Jesus is a better priest because he's an eternal priest, Hebrews 7. The office of priest doesn't exist for us anymore. After Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, he took that office and closed it. He, unlike Hophni and Phinehas, has been performing the office perfectly, sinlessly, and gloriously. You see what the Old Testament does, right? It often says, not this or this or this, but this. That's why we have all these imperfect priests in the Old Testament. Not this one or this one or this one, but this one. We have a better priest. Now, all of that was going on in Shiloh. All of that didn't happen in a day. It got worse over a period of time. It started with small compromises. Then it led to all-out debauchery. This tabernacle area was a small area, about the size of four tennis courts. The the tabernacle itself was a little over 10,000 square feet, not including all the rooms and apartments built off it. It's not like Eli didn't know what was going on. He's been passively endorsing all of this. In fact, he's been enjoying the juicy roast. The extra meat that the boys brought him. Chapter 4 says Eli is obese. The fat that belonged to the Lord is now around his waist. It's time for me to stop sugarcoating the life of Eli. He couldn't differentiate a praying woman from a drunken woman in chapter 1. What type of spiritual leader is this? He and his boys are eating Yahweh's food and leaving God the scraps. Eli enjoyed the fruit of their corruptions. He's not restraining his sons from making a mockery of the tabernacle. Eli called Hannah worthless in chapter 1. God calls Eli's sons worthless in chapter 2. Same Hebrew word. Eli said, are you Belial's daughter? God says, no she isn't. But these are Belial's sons. Now Eli waddles over to his boys and he says in verse 23b, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. No, my son, it is no good report that I hear. All the worshipers knew about Eli's sons. Imagine what it was like to be one of them. See, here's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to break your natural inclinations when you go to the Old Testament. Because when you go to the Old Testament, you naturally think imitation. How am I like Eli or his sons or Samuel? Don't think like that. Instead, think of you as Israel. Imagine what it was like to worship in this day. To bring your food to sacrifice to your creator God. And then the priest not be there. He would come late. And you would see him come out of a side room zipping his pants up. And then going through the religious motions with your sacrifice. What would that do to you? Would you think, where is the purity in worship? What type of God will allow his mouthpieces to do these things? Godly people spoke to Eli about his sons. Put a stop to it, Eli. This is God's house. This has gone on long enough. Put your fat foot down. Eli had the authority To remove his sons from office. But he knew if he did, they would become beggars and homeless. They wouldn't have a job. And he loved his son's job security more than he loved purity and worship. I've seen pastors cover up for their sons in the ministry. If I told you stories, it would be so unbelievable you would get chills. A son on a church staff addicted to pain pills and the pastor covers it up. A son who is a pastor has an affair with someone in his church and his influential father pastor moves him to another state to pastor another church. For Eli, blood was thicker than fidelity to God's word. Eli gives his boys a mild rebuke but he is not willing to take the steps necessary to restrain them. I'm not denying there's a tiny rebuke, but there is no action. He didn't hesitate to give Hannah a strong rebuke in chapter 1, but he struggles to give even a minuscule rebuke here. Eli, to tolerate sin and not to deal with it severely is to participate in that sin. It's gutless compassion that never wants to offend anyone. You are not helping them by ignoring their sin. Verse 25b, but they would not listen to the voice of their father. Surprise, surprise. Eli devoted as much discipline to his boys as he did to his diet. Zero. This insubordination went all the way back to their youth which helps us to arrive at our third worship principle. The fall of leaders in the church is not always a tragedy. It may well be a sign of God's work to renew his people. The fall of leaders in the church is not always a tragedy. It may well be a sign of God's work to renew his people. I was reading Peter Lighthart this week, and he says that, the hardening we see in them could be a prelude to overthrowing them let me show you god's plan to renew his people verse 26 now the boy samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the lord and also with man church does that ring a bell continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the lord and also with does that sound familiar Sounds like I've read that before about another young boy. But maybe I'm imagining it. The narrator continues artfully alternating between Eli's sons and Elkanah's son. He's showing you a contrast. Eli's sons, that's Hophni and Phinehas. Elkanah's son, that's Samuel. Eli's sons, evil boys. Elkanah's son, a faithful boy. Those boys stole the Lord's meat. Samuel ministered before the Lord. They were condemned by the Lord. Samuel was commended by the Lord. They were great in their sin. Samuel was great in his faith. They were busy exploiting people. Samuel was busy serving the Lord. They had identical religious educations and opportunities, but not identical hearts you know, it's interesting, uh, Phineas is not the first Phineas that we find in the Bible. The first Phineas we find in the Bible is in Numbers 25. He was also a priest, but he was known for ending fornication in the camp. The second Phineas was known for bringing fornication in the camp. You can give a child a name, but you can't make him live up to it. In verses 27 Through 35, God sends a man of God to confront Eli. We don't know who this man of God was. But he makes his way to Shiloh and he approaches the tabernacle and he says, I need to speak to Eli. Eli comes out and there's a conversation. The unnamed prophet begins by describing what God has done for the house of Eli. Verse 27. Now there came a man of God to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt subject to the house of Pharaoh? Let's pause here. The the father here is Aaron. During the time of Exodus, Aaron and his sons were ordained as a perpetual priesthood and Eli is in that line. Verse 28. Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest? To go up to my altar to burn incense to wear an ephod before me? I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. I want you to see God revealed, verse 27. God chose, verse 28. God gave, verse 28. The unnamed prophet began by talking about what God had done for the house of Eli. And now he's going to shift and move to what Eli had done to the house of God. He presented a litany of crimes. I'll summarize them into two. First, Eli scorned sacrifices. You find the word scorn in verse 29. The word scorn is literally the word kick. Eli, you kicked my sacrifices. You didn't value grace. You didn't cling to mercy. The the first crime, Eli scorned sacrifices. He kicked them. The second... Eli honored his sons. Eli honored his sons. Eli is putting his sons before God. Fathers failing to restrain their sons is a common theme throughout 1 Samuel. We first encounter it here, but we will see it again. I imagine Eli wished he could go back and pour the word into his boys. Discipline them. He spent many nights wondering what went wrong It's too late now. They do not listen to the voice of their father. Is there a child that you are allowing to get away with sin? There's a heart attachment there, so you have trouble seeing it. Are you honoring your daughter above the Lord? The man of God began by talking about what God had done for the house of Eli and then moved to what Eli had done to the house of God. Now he's announcing his judgment for all of those actions. Hear his stinging rebuke in verse 30. Therefore the Lord, the God of Israel declares, I promised that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, skip to verse 31, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house so that there will not be an old man in your house. Judgment number one your line is going to be cut off. God had promised Aaron's house the privilege of serving as priests, but there was a, a clear obligation involved. He gave them a conditional promise, their behavior canceled the promise. God didn't nullify the promise. They nullified the promise by their behavior. Your family will no longer be the priestly family. I will install a new line of priests. And this happened. It happened. Eli's line of descendants was replaced by Zedekite priests under Solomon. The Zadok's took over priestly duties and Eli's line served them doing menial tabernacle tasks. The man of God also said survivors from your family will be begging for handouts saying please give me some priestly work just enough to put some food on the table. Ironic. They stole the meat of God and now will be reduced to begging for meat. Seems like I heard that in a song recently. Yes. Yes. Hannah's song in chapter 2. Those who are full will hire themselves out for bread. Hunger drove them to beg for even lowly jobs in the sanctuary. God announced, I'm going to judge your family forever because you allowed your sons to blaspheme me. So the specs of God's judgment here are are corporate and specific corporately your line is going to be cut off specifically judgment two none of your descendants are going to live into old age and this prophecy is fulfilled progressively in stages in the following century they died out little by little all Eli's descendants will die in the prime of life in fact 85 of his descendants met a violent death in one of the darkest episodes in Israel's history Eli, though, will not experience most of these deaths, so God gives him a sign. That's judgment number three. Both your sons will die on the same day. Hophni and Phinehas. How will they die? you have to wait till next week, church. That leads us to worship principle number four. God takes worship sins seriously. He cares how he is worshipped. Now, all of the stealing, all of the adultery, all of the bullying, all of that is still going on. Judgment has been pronounced, but judgment has not yet been levied. It's business as usual in Shiloh, which means shady business. And the narrator is fast-forwarding us, chapter 3, verse 1. Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli. Then we have the statement that gives us the spiritual temperature of the day. And the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. There was a, a famine of the word of God in the land. God was not audibly speaking to his people. He wasn't audibly speaking to his priest. Eli neither sees God nor hears his voice. They are doing the work of God without the voice of God. Verse 2, at that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. He could not see physically, but he could not see spiritually either. He lacked spiritual vision. God stopped speaking to him. And Eli serves as a warning for anyone in spiritual leadership. For pastors, for seminar teachers, for small group leaders, for children's ministry workers, for chaplains. Eli serves as a warning for anyone in spiritual leadership. A spiritual position does not guarantee spiritual growth. A spiritual position does not guarantee spiritual growth. Eli got used to doing the work of God without hearing the voice of God. Don't assume your position guarantees you from growing dull toward God's word. Things can become mechanical. You can develop a spiritual casualness regarding holy things. There is a form, but it's lacking substance. You're just going through the motions. In fact, Arnold, the commentator, not the Schwarzenegger, uh, Arnold said, there is something about throwing someone into the everyday affairs of the church, into the routine of doing church work that is defective. It soothes our conscience and makes us feel we are in the right state of mind spiritually. Verse 3. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord. According to Josephus, Samuel is now 12 years old. The tabernacle had no electricity, so a a seven-branch golden candlestick burned throughout the night. The lamp has not yet gone out, so it's not morning yet. Some scholars say Samuel was sleeping in the courtyard, Some say he was in one of the apartments on the side of the tabernacle. Uh, We aren't sure, but he wasn't a a full priest, so he couldn't be in the holy place or the holy of holies. He he was likely sleeping in the tabernacle precincts, not the tabernacle proper. Samuel is awakened when someone calls his name. (laughs) He thought it was Eli. He ran to Eli, and Eli, all groggy and sleepy, said, I didn't call you. Go back to bed. Samuel. Samuel runs to his master as one who is eager to carry out his wishes. Same thing. Eli knocks over his water looking for his glasses. Samuel, I didn't call you. Go back to bed. Yahweh is in no apparent hurry. He gives Samuel time to catch on. God is not heaving an exasperated sigh. Samuel is inexperienced hearing God's voice. Verse 8. And the Lord called Samuel again. What grace. The third time. And he rose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. It should have dawned on Eli sooner. But he was, he was so used to God not speaking, and he forgot that God does speak. Eli said when he calls again, Samuel, answer. Speak, Lord, for your sovereign hears. And the Lord came and stood, verse 10, calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. Abraham, Abraham at Mount Moriah. Jacob, Jacob at Beersheba. Moses, Moses at the burning bush. We know this is about to be something significant. Samuel, Samuel. Samuel receives both word and vision. The Lord came and stood. The God of creation came to stand in front of a little boy in his room. Samuel said, speak, for your servant hears. Verse 11, then the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I'm about to do a thing in Israel which the two ears of everyone who who hears will tingle. Tingling ears, this, this happens when God gives a special judgment. You find it in 2 Kings 21, Jeremiah 19. God gives Samuel the message, the same message that he gave the unknown prophet earlier. Eli heard God's judgment from an unnamed prophet and now he's going to hear it from a boy prophet. The next morning Samuel opened the door so the people could come and worship. But verse 21 says he was afraid to share the vision with Eli. Eli. God's word will often call you to do difficult things. Samuel is about to take a painful step of obedience. Verse 16. But Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. And he said, Here am I. And Eli said, What is it that Yahweh told you? Do not hide it from me. This is striking. Samuel's first act as prophet was perhaps his most difficult. He's going to announce fatal judgment on Israel's most powerful family. He's going to look his mentor in the face and say, God has rejected you. Samuel relayed the vision very carefully and completely. The verse says he told everything and hid nothing from him. Samuel said nothing more and nothing less Than what God had spoken. Samuel loved Eli. He loved his spiritual father. This must have caused him great grief of spirit. No doubt though. It must make Samuel more sensitive to sin. Knowing that God takes it seriously. In verse 18b. And Eli said. It is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. Eli is resigning to God's judgment. He charges the creator of the earth with no wrong. The gray head bows in sorrow at the rebuke of a lowly boy. He knows the Lord's message is irrevocable. And Samuel grew and the Lord was with him and let none of his words fall to the ground. This is Samuel's call to be a prophet. He begins by bringing God's word to God's people. His words will not rot or fall to pieces. His words will not evaporate because he's giving the people the words of God. Verse 20, and all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. From the northern to the southern borders, from Maine to Florida, Samuel was confirmed, validated as God's spokesman. Samuel was once totally dependent on Eli, but now he has surpassed Eli. The roles have reversed. The word of God was rare, verse 1. The word of God comes, verse 20. God brought his word back to his people. It is a sign of God's grace when his word is, has free reign among his people. God filled the void of spiritual leadership in Israel. Through Samuel, God's word was restored to a whole nation, which helps us to arrive at worship principle number six. When God wants to change the status quo, he sends his word. What do we need in a spiritual crisis? We need God's word. What do we need when we're going through the motion spiritually? We need God's word. What do we need when our service is growing cold and meaningless? We need God's word. When is the last time that you have felt deep conviction of sin? Thomas A. Kempis said, I would rather feel contrition than know how to define it. We don't gather here to accumulate knowledge. We gather to encounter God. You can be busy like Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas doing a lot of things for God. But never hear from God. And that is why we take preaching so seriously in this church. Josh Redberg says the most dangerous place for a person to be is in a church that does not preach the Bible. The constant religious exercise and vague God talk serves to harden a person to God. Do you listen to the word of God eagerly? God speaks both to inform us and form us. We need information and formation. J.I. Packer writes, God, our maker, knows all about us before we say anything. But we can know nothing about him unless he tells us. When God speaks, it's not merely to get across information. It is to increase our view of God. Hophni and Phinehas had a small view of God. Samuel has a big view of God. Worship principle number seven. You don't have to wait to hear God's voice. You can open a book and hear it all day long. I want to be clear. Chapter 3 is not a lesson on how God speaks to us. I heard and read so many preachers this week saying just that I'm throwing books in my study, kicking things, staff thinks I've gone crazy. We are not mimicking Samuel in order to get God to speak to us. He was calling Samuel as a prophet, he's not doing that anymore. Those of you that are children in here, you children don't need to lay awake at night and listen for God's voice. You need to get up and open a Bible and read God's voice. The spiritual mysticism that people come out with after studying chapter three is mind-boggling to me. I saw Jesus in my, my morning burnt toast. God spelled out a message to me in my bowl of Cheerios. No, he didn't. We are not Samuel. The word of God is not rare in our days. You have 10 Bibles on your shelf. John Calvin said, Scriptures serve as spectacles. As we look through spectacles, we see the world aright. Why is it so hard for me to read the Bible? Why is it so hard for me to listen to the Bible exposited? Well, after Adam and Eve sinned, God's voice became a source of anxiety and fear. Sin causes us to fear God's voice rather than love God's voice. God still speaks. One pastor suggested an excellent exercise. He said, grab a piece of paper, write personal, home, and church at the top. In each column, list ways you are listening to God's word. Personal, home, Church. Hophni and Phineas were scorning, literally kicking the sacrifice. Well, it's a good thing God sent his word to stop it because that would never happen again. Or would it? 3,000 years later, there was another piece of bloodied meat. And he was kicked, punched, and spit upon. Jesus Christ came to earth to be the final sacrifice to be kicked by men. That's why we don't give sacrifices anymore. That's why we don't celebrate these Shiloh festivals anymore. Because Jesus fulfilled all that. What previous kicked sacrifices could not do, this kicked sacrifice did. His sacrifice paid the penalty for sin. Dear non-Christians, When you reject Jesus Christ as Lord and refuse to repent, you kick him. Don't kick him. Kiss him. Don't kick the son. Kiss the son. Don't kick the sacrifice. Rest in the final sacrifice. Church family, I was going through this text this week and One of my fears was I don't want us to become Pharisees. I don't don't want us to leave saying I'm so glad I'm not Hophni and Phinehas. I would never do that. I only and always offer acceptable worship to God. (laughs) Dear deceived friend, your behavior doesn't make your sacrifice acceptable to God. All of your worship must be washed in the blood of Christ. Even your best is mere filthy rags. Only one, and it's none of us, only one has not done what Hafni and Phineas did. Only one has not kicked the sacrifice. Only one. And that's the one who became the sacrifice. And it's in his work and his work alone that we rest. Thank you for listening to this resource of Faith Family Church.